Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Darian Hill. He's the co-founder of Superdot Studio and co-author of Visualizing Complexity, Modular Information Design Handbook. And I also want to give a shout out to his co-author and partner, um, Nicole Lockenmeyer, who was supposed to be on the show with us, but unfortunately couldn't join. So we always want to acknowledge whenever there are co-founders, partners, all that good stuff. So Nicole, that shout out was specifically for you and your contribution to all of this good work. But Darian, you're here with me now. So welcome to the deep dive. How are you? Thanks. Yeah, I'm doing really good. Uh, it's sunny weather. Spring is here in Switzerland. So everything's good. Spring in Switzerland. That, that's that's not a term <laughs> that, <you> know, <laughs> that bubbles up quite often. I love the Swiss, though. I got to say that it's an expensive fucking place to live. Jesus. I've I've not spent a lot of time in Switzerland, but I've flown through the various airports and been like, nah, can't do it. <laughs> Everything is expensive. I was I think I was flying to Tel Aviv through Zurich, and I just w- went to get like just a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. You know, tea. Yeah, tea is the most basic shit in the world. <laughs> it is a a bag in hot water, and it was like nine euros. And this was. Not recently. This is like 2014. I, I I see that. I think it's just that kind of in Switzerland also the income level is very high. So that's how kind of people can afford it. Also the nine euro or nine Swiss francs, a cup of tea. And even though, and I mean, that's kind of the imbalance somehow in societies. And when Swiss people go abroad, they're like, everything is cheap. Yeah. So yeah, I, I see that. They, they live like kings over there. And I'm like, mm-mm. I'm gonna have to go without this tea because to get some. I'm just gonna have to get some basic water. <laughs> I'm, yeah. not, I'm not spending nine euros on a on a tea bag and and hot water. But anyway, nonetheless, I'm glad you can join me. And it's springtime in Switzerland. It's supposed to be springtime here in New York. We're actually recording this on the first day of spring, but New York spring is like nah. It's cold, um, sunny but cold. But the book visualizing complexity is. One that I really enjoy going through, I think, as you cited at the very beginning of the book, it's the kind of work that you can jump into and start with wherever you want. In keeping with that, I want to kind of start our conversation with a little bit of the genesis of the project, like why you and Nicole took this on and decided to create the modular information design. Yeah, Um, it's actually really a long story, but okay, let's try to summarize. I think the whole process started a long time ago and um, we are in this business of information design since more than 10 years and what we realized is that the way we work and then that the way we try to experiment and be playful with the content we get from our clients is somewhere unique and especially we realized that there is some kind of gap when people applied and started to work with us, so kind of in the team, 
then we just saw that the things they learn at university and the things they kind of experience in other agencies is not the same that it's it's not our culture and um so there was this idea that we were trying to put together kind of our spirit our way of working our process our belief somehow we tried to put it together over years and yeah and then came corona the crisis and somehow the lockdown and we said okay we lost actually all at that moment all our projects so we had nothing to do and then we said okay let's use this time to make something good to make something for others let's make something for us so actually we um rented a cottage in the mountains and um went there and started thinking and putting together all the things we collected over the years and seeing the pattern and the pattern was that we saw that there are so many books really good books but they are all the data visualization and the information design books are a lot going into the direction of this is good this is bad if you have this don't use that color or kind of red is an alarm color green is a good color kind of all these rules and we were like okay i mean already with the color red um if you work for a client whose branding is red because it's switzerland and let's say it's a bank the ubs they're all in red. So you have to work with red. And if people say red is an alarm color, I mean, you cannot work with that. So we said, okay. I mean, we had a lot of discussions because we were not sure if it's going to be a book. We just said, okay, maybe it's just a little article. Then we saw it's more than an article. Then we had a discussion regarding what data are we going to use to explain what we want to say. Then we went for hiking because we were not sure what to do. And um, after a while, we just kind of saw that we have something and that we have broken down in discussions all the ideas into very little pieces, like the chemical, you know, the periodic system of in chemistry. So we were like, okay, we have something, so let's work with that. So that was Corona times. And we worked the two years of Corona on this project. And yeah, and then when Corona was plus minus done, so last May 22, we, our book was done. Uh, there's a few really interesting things in there. One, there's the notion of inspiration born through crisis, right? There's coronavirus and, and to the extent of where you are in, in that cycle was definitely a, a place where perspectives, locale, geographies um, were all shifting. And then you have the the reality of of moving out of one space into another to create right this this notion of of going into um, the mountains as, as you describe, which again I could picture in Switzerland, right? Um, and now this project is born and it's and it's in the world. I want to spend a little bit of time on even the the notion of complexity in and of itself, because I I, I find it's a word that is used more and more commonly outside of strategy and design circles and has is, is become part of this more general lexicon. And with that comes many different interpretations, right? Some admittedly better than others. There's a um, sort of pop culture way in which we use language where terms are sort of interchangeable, right? Like I often cite in my work, the difference between complexity and complicated right? People will often use them in the same way, but 
in, in my mind and in the mind of others, they're vastly different. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about how you think about complexity as the first part of the question. And then the second part would be, why do you think the visual element is so important relative to your, to your definition? Yeah, the point is that actually the word complexity, I mean, we work with that, with the word visualizing complexity for our agency for years. And once we started working on the book, we had the term and I started researching. I started looking at what are other people saying? What is complexity? And to be honest, I got really afraid. I was like, Ooh, I mean, there is so much theory and does it apply? And what do the others say? And, and then we had actually our conversation with the publisher because in the beginning we wanted just to say it's called modular information design because that's where I felt safe. And then the publisher said, no, 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 it has to be called visualizing complexity. And I was like, yeah, but that's kind of such a, it's not a difficult word, but it's kind of, it, it's a word with huge strength and power and impact. And that's why I wanted to avoid it. And the publisher said, no, 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 just go for it. Just go for it. It's good. So we said, okay, how, go, how are we going to deal with that? And our approach towards complexity was that we said, okay, let's try to define our complexity, not kind of what the others say. Where is the complexity in our daily practice, in our daily work? And for us, the complexity is this today's world where you have a lot of information interconnected, but actually you don't see them and you don't have, you always have the feeling you don't have all the information you need. So you have always the feeling that you're lost. And then suddenly that coming back to that, what does the visualization do is you bring somehow your, let's call it half knowledge to paper and by kind of bringing it to paper, externalizing from your mind on paper, it gets somehow people can attach to it. And why we said kind of it's, and that complexity that can be hidden in numbers so that you have that Excel sheet and you have the numbers and you're like, oh, I don't understand it. So kind of, it can be numbers, but to be honest, 75% of our daily jobs is the complexity, which is hidden in text that you kind of read the sentences and you read the strategy from a client or anything. And you're like, I don't understand it. And then you ask yourself, do I have all the information to understand it? So that's actually what we mean with by complexity and the, the moment. And then also kind of, it needed time and it needed kind of self-confidence and kind of brave being brave to Tell to the client and to others that I don't understand it. And the way we do that is not just by saying, but by drawing. So kind of I make some boxes and some arrows and I'm like, okay, did you, did you mean that the strategy and then I make an arrow to another one and say it's connected to that theory and is that theory connected to the other one? And then I show that kind of sketch to, to the clients and to the other, to the other side. And then I realized that they also didn't see that point. So actually, then we start to have an interesting conversation because actually I'm not the one who is asking the stupid question. I'm probably the one who is asking the questions also the others have. And 
That's why we realize that actually somehow we need to visualize in order to communicate and we need to visualize in order to have participation and also to invite others to be part of the whole process. It's interesting that you you mentioned this idea of participation toward the end and also of of knowing because complex systems it's hard to know the elements of them right because they are not static they're shifting they can have different weights at different times a term that i that came up very early on in a in a conversation i had to kick off the year was the way in which we are entangled right so in in this conversation with a a, a good friend and, and colleague indy johar we were using that word in a societal perspective but i find it's it's as useful in any other perspective right that complex systems are entangled with one another i think you use in the book um one of the words you use are um interwoven and when you have those types of systems it's very hard to grasp them right it's difficult to you know quote unquote get your arms around stuff and it sounds to me like as you describe this visualization process and the invitation that it gives to not just yourselves as practitioners but the clients to actually be more participatory and explorative is part of why this works so well would would you say that's a, a fair assessment because I, I like i find like a lot of people never want to admit they don't know right like we, we got to walk into every situation with a certain level of certainty because we're experts <laughs> exactly exactly so the first is that people don't want to say that they don't know that's the first and there is this really the uncomfortable situation when you're in this meeting and you just kind of pull out your powerful sketch and paper and you ask is that really right and you see that kind of now you made something visible what you should should have not made visible because it was hidden because it was just like a a sentence a concept and people were like yeah yeah that that sounds good yeah yeah, yeah let's do that but in the end when you start to put that to paper you see these patterns and you're like ah, something's missing right so yeah i would say that's completely right what you you just said before that this interwoven and the, the, the aspect, and that makes it difficult, kind of. It makes always difficult to say that kind of you don't understand something because actually that's why people who are, have very limited time and that's why they pay you for that expertise and for your consulting, they're like, you shouldn't ask me questions. You should give me answers. So that, that's the interesting first part of kind of scenario. And the second one is always that people are, for some whatever reason, afraid to draw. So kind of there is always, they feel more comfortable to use templates, to feel more comfortable to use PowerPoint and Word and, and talk and kind of taking images from Google images to have some images in the slides or something. But kind of that moment to take a flip chart and take the pen and try to kind of make some lines and try to to show that complexity or something, how it's connected, that's big hurdle. That's kind of the barrier where, that people don't cross. Somehow they're afraid of that moment. And that's actually what we say that kind of, it's, it's such, I mean, we are losing so much capacity and efficiency because of that psychological factor of that scary white blank paper. 
I know I wouldn't have thought that. Right, because I think we've all played Pictionary, right? Like, do do you guys have that game? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, (laughs) Okay, so like, before I make this assumption that like Pictionary is everywhere, or maybe it's called something else, but you know, I think many of us have been in a you know some sort of game night, and Pictionary makes an appearance, and then we're in this like black hole of trying to like you know sketch out like a toaster. Right. Or like something, something crazy. So I'm curious, like, I, I love that observation that you're making because I feel like there's something rooted in why there is that fear or hesitation to step up to that white piece of paper. Right. Like, what, like, where do you think that comes from? Just, I'm, I'm really curious about that. I mean, I would, I always say it's, it's somehow like stepping on the stage. If you you are sitting or you are just kind of plugging the cable and projecting something, you are not really on the stage, right? You, you are talking and so on. But as soon as you stand up like a teacher in school and you start to draw in front of the flip chat, you are really on the stage. And it feels really uncomfortable. And I would say that that kind of that step, I mean, you need to be either crazy or brave or something or, uh, or like a... a no, I don't say uh, narcissist, narcissism, no. <laughs> but kind of, you have to have that, like the guts, you kind of to go there and, and to, to, to show that. And also that kind of maybe others are already looking at the watch, like, okay, we, we are running out of time. Why are you asking that? Why are you now kind of slowing down the whole conversation? I mean, we should, we should go on. So, I mean, there are, I think that it, the, it, there are several reasons, but somehow I think the most, the biggest one is kind of that you are taking the stage and no, not peop, not everybody wants to have the stage. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting and, and it's funny when you were, as you were telling me originally about that fear, I thought about the fear of public speaking, which folks, you know, tons of studies have said it's one of the most big, is one of the most significant fears that people have, right? To to speak publicly, which for someone like myself that speaks publicly, I've never really quite gotten that. You know, it's just, you know, and I'm, I'm not judging folks who have that hesitation because we all have things that we're not comfortable doing, but there was never a time in my life when I was afraid to talk, you know, for good or for bad, right? Like if you, being a little kid when, you know, your friends came, you know, your parents' friends would come over and they'd be like, go, tell them a story. You know, they push you, the little four-year-old in front of their friends to entertain them. I was like, all right, <laughs> you know, where like, it just was never a thing. So I don't fully get it when people are afraid to speak in public, but I respect that it's a thing. Drawing is interesting to me because drawing is something that we've all done quite naturally as like kids, right? Like that's always like an interesting thing to me. There's all like, when I was in school, there's always like that one kid who's sort of like a really good artist, right? Even when you're a little kid, like all of their house, a little spatially different, you know, but all kids, I, what fascinates me about kid art is that it's all the same in a way, right? Like if you took a bunch of three-year-olds here in New York, a bunch of three-year-olds in Switzerland, a bunch of three-year-olds in Beijing, and you gave them, oh, draw your house in the world, right? The tree's going to look the same. The sun is going to be like in a corner, right? Or it's going to be a circle with some kind of rays coming from it. The house is going to be a triangle, you know, give or take, right? And somehow it seems like we lose that, right? Like 
no kid is afraid to pick up like they if anything kids draw too much on shit they're not supposed to be drawing on right like they draw on a wall <laughs> you know, anything napkin anything they find they want to put pencil markers crayons and just go to town adults less so right and it's interesting because I'm, I'm just this is really this none of this was planned in my notes to talk so much about drawing but i find it so interesting because like a few years ago maybe it might still be a thing at least here in the united states there was this like people doing like coloring books was like a big thing right like oh we're gonna adult coloring and i was always kind of like Meh, for a lot of reasons but mostly because i'm like well you're in the lines right and one of the things i always try to challenge people is to get out of the lines right like break out of just filling in stuff, right? So I'm I'm curious in in your in your perception, right? To the extent that you guys have given this some thought, like how did we lose that sort of ability to really just be comfortable with the playful aspect of things, the fun aspect of things, the just being okay with something not being idealized, right? I think you completely got the point. The reason for the book, I mean. Our book is somehow trying to bring us back to make this big mystery. What is visualization? What's professional visualization? How does it have to look? But we say, actually, we don't care. And also in the book, what the first thing is we say, actually, we don't care how that diagram type will look like. We just say, try to experiment and then give it to your neighbor, give it to someone and let them read it. And be, it's like being that child that you were explaining before, that you say, okay, the playfulness and kind of the, the way that children draw is that kind of, they have fun and they have an idea and draw it. And then they see kind of, they are, then you have the parents who are sometimes just saying kind of, okay, that that's not really a house or that's not really a tree, or I know you can do better or something. So kind of you have that kind of test and you have kind of maybe by growing up, we get a little bit more of these expectations from others, how something have to look. And you have that expectations also now a lot in data visualization where they say, okay, uh, you have quantitative data about, I don't know, time. That's the diagram type, which has to represent time. So kind of, there are these kind of rules. And actually what we, or kind of you have cities, so it has to be a map. So a map rep represents kind of the cities, but we are like, okay, what happens if you just put away the map? Kind of these are the things that we are questioning. And this is kind of that experimental surprising moment where you maybe in the beginning take some risks, but kind of that's, that's, that's learning, that's fun. And that's actually when the day is over, you have the feeling that you have had a good day and you were experimenting and drawing like a kid. And maybe you have days where you're like, okay, I completely wasted time because it doesn't work. Kind of you, you draw something and you just realize it doesn't work, but you learned something, but you're maybe you're still frustrated because you, you lost one day of your client's time. So, so coming back to, I think the reason that's going to be really a very big question. I mean, where are we heading as a society? Because we already see now patterns that when we are teaching at university, and that's kind of the big difference, is that when we give our students the task and we tell them, okay, let's draw something. First thing is that the students say, I don't have paper and pens. I have my iPad. So we said, okay. So from that moment on, we started always coming into the class with paper and pens. So we said, okay, 
And then we tell them, okay, draw me something about your last, I don't know, holidays. How did that look like? Blah, blah, blah. And then the people start looking into inspirations on Google Images, on Pinterest or Instagram. So kind of that moment of doing something yourself is somehow lost. And also kind of that really drawing. But on the other hand, that's also good what you said before. On the other hand, people still have some need to do something with their body. So they buy that mandala or the coloring books where you're like, okay, why do you do that? But it's still somehow in us that we say, okay, it's maybe relaxing and drawing is like yoga and it, it brings me to come down, to focus and so on. Question is just why don't we combine that in everyday's work? So kind of why don't we do that again? So we don't have to accelerate and, and give all the nice things to the tools, which are making it faster and more automated. Why don't we do that ourselves again? It's, it's interesting to hear this perspective of working with students, and these are university students, right? And when they default to, again, these, these tools, right? And as, as someone who is long on the record, as, as, as listeners of the show will attest to as, as being like, I used to say like I'm a Luddite, but now it's like, I, I kind of, I don't know if I coined this or heard it somewhere in the universe, but I've been using more like tech reluctant, right? Like I am the tech reluctant guy. Right. So I don't have a ton of apps. I don't do a lot of shit with my phone. I'm just, I'm just honestly not interested in like 95% of this stuff. And a lot of the stuff that, that folks say is like, oh, it's so amazing. It's so much better. I'm like, eh, is it, you know, like I'm just, I just usually land on this stuff is kind of whack to me. Right. While also recognizing like there is, some benefit to it. Like I was an architecture major in high school, right? And this was in the eighties. I graduated from high school in 1990. And, you know, it, this was like a serious architecture thing. Like the school I went to was like a pretty serious engineering kind of school. And so we had like a building construction, we had like a big foundry, like there's a lot of stuff. I took a lot of drafting classes, all of it. And AutoCAD was just coming on board. Right. So we had like a computer lab with like AutoCAD, but like in DOS. Right. So I'm like throwing out like a lot of terms that people might not be familiar with. And so, you know, you went from having to do like renderings and 3D models and stuff to very basic stuff with AutoCAD. I've seen AutoCAD more recently and I'm like, damn, this shit is crazy. Right. Like what you used to do over like a drafting board that would take not hours, I'm talking about weeks you can do in AutoCAD in like slivers of the time, right? But there is something that you, I think you lose from going on a site with paper and starting to like sketch things, right? But when you say that, people say like, oh, you're crazy. Do you, do you want to go back to the time when you were like spending three weeks to like make one set of blueprints right so like how do you without sounding like the person that's like yelling at a cloud how do you like you said find uh some place where there's an appreciation for the more tactile exp experimentation versus the tools it took us really years to develop the portfolio and to always what we realized we always have to show the process kind of how do did we get to that result so basically 
when clients approach us, they see that there is a step and we show it in every project we do that there is a step where we have been on paper. And as soon as there is like this first contact with the potential client or anybody, I just say, okay, just be aware that the first phase of every project, whatever it is, numbers or text or strategy or whatever, the first phase will be on paper. And the first approval of the concept and the content is going to be on paper. The kind of you have to know that kind of we will that kind of the first phase where we talk about really the the core kind of to slow down and kind of to get to the core of the problem or the solution that will be on paper and and i must say people accept that and as soon as they see the first results and they see kind of that handmade sketch and that they see that that kind of line is not perfect and that there is a uh, a difference in the thickness where I kind of put my pen and where I kind of uh, and and they see a little they see a little bit of dirt on the paper and so on. So they kind of get this sympathy and and kind of it it gets very a good atmosphere for discussions and kind of there is no too fast expectation. Then kind of we slow down the process. We get to the point. We approve that we understand what is to be kind of what's the problem what's the solution and and from that on at some point we start of course when we know what we have to do then we switch and we work of course on the computer and we with adobe with the the, the software tools uh, as you said because that's that's faster and you can kind of also I mean, the, the things have to look good. I mean, we just realized that it, it's not enough to have a good sketch if you want your poster to... I mean, the, the thing is always that the, the effort to get to the first result is very high. So kind of people were like, what? It's so expensive. I mean, really, data visualization is so expensive. But I must say the return is there because that poster is not just maybe for that conference. The people will keep that poster, if it's beautiful, for years after the conference. So you will have a much bigger impact than you think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because in one of my notes here, I have down here, like, like you talk about this beauty and I'm glad it, it came up organically in our conversations. It makes me feel good that my notes are, are leading us somewhere, right? <laughs> but I, I had this, kind of notation here, information design equal beautiful, then with a couple of arrows, right? And it was like, you know, can it be beautiful? And to the extent that it can be beautiful, you know, why is that important in your mind to, to have that as part of the process? Because my, my own sort of editorial, I feel like beauty is something that's, I don't know, either underappreciated or maybe underappreciated isn't the right word, but there's this this notion I feel nowadays that there's a smoothness to beauty that I actually don't find very beautiful. <laughs> so maybe that's what I'm trying to get at. Like if I think about things like Instagram or more like social media things, like what people say, like, oh man, it's really beautiful. Or, you know, if, like here in the US, like a lot of like home renovation shows are very popular, right? And so, you, you know, they're like, oh, we took this old thing and turned it new and, and, you know, you watch these shows and I feel like every show, um, I end up looking at the exact same place, right? 
but it's beautiful, right? There's a flat screen over a marble fireplace and, you know, it's open access. You know what I mean? Like, it's just all of this shit now just feels like I'm just looking at the same thing over and over and over again because it's like, I don't know, it's why we've defaulted into it. So I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but I'm trying to get to this notion of, of beauty and underappreciated, undervalued, lost somewhere. Like, how do you think about that as it applies to maybe specifically information design, but maybe I'm asking a bigger question. I don't know. You are definitely asking a bigger question, but um, okay. <laughs> it's a good one, but it's a good one. So um, I would say, I mean, regarding beauty for us, for Nicole and me, it's extremely important because if you work for, let's say, a bank, I mean, what what does a bank do and what kind of beauty could a bank have? Maybe an interesting building where the people from the bank are working. Maybe they have an interesting office or maybe a, like entrance from the office. But why don't we make the diagrams from the bank beautiful, you know? I mean, we have the raw material and it's always the questions kind of how can you shape that raw material, be it wood or marble? But maybe it's just data and maybe it's just text. And why don't we make that one beautiful so that you kind of you feel attracted to look at it before maybe you would have passed, you, you, you would just continued walking next to it and you're like, ah, it's not interesting. But maybe it's kind of just kind of getting your attention and you're like, okay, this is really interesting. And what is it? And then you look at it. So the question is just why don't we use that power of beauty to get people's attention for topics, for also important topics? So... I think it's really, really important. And the, the second part maybe of your question is that I would say there is kind of deep beauty and maybe just kind of like a surface, like a very thin beauty. And the one, the one is the one that you are really producing very fast. It's kind of this question, this thing more of the same, or maybe kind of this uh, amazing artificial intelligence algorithms, which are actually just kind of combining, like making a collage without really knowing. But for me, that kind of fast pace, if, if I have a client or somebody asking for a visualization, which has to be kind of done in one day and everything is already prepared, I'm like, okay, you are asking me for decoration. You are asking me to just kind of make it maybe bigger typography, maybe more interesting colors, which are trendy currently or something, but you are not asking me to really go into the depth. And for me, like, let's call it, I don't know if it's the right term, but kind of this more deeper beauty is when you really question the meaning of something. So, and maybe in the first if you create a chair and that is so smart and so simple, maybe you are not even understanding the concept in the first moment of the, if you see that chair. You're like, okay, that's something interesting. But maybe the process behind, it takes time, but then you realize that there is a lot of thought behind it. And the other things which are not that deep, you look at it and you see, okay, I mean, there is not that much of thought behind it. So that's why I would say kind of there, there are these two levels. Absolutely. And it's it's interesting that you, you brought up sort of the, the chat kind of algorithms and stuff, because, you know, as a culture person, this is now pervasive, right? There's since each iteration of this thing, my LinkedIn, my Twitter are like filled with like 
I don't know. I guess people would consider them like elevated conversations. To me, I consider it mostly nonsense. <laughs> I say it's nonsense because I think the thing is nonsense, right? So I'm, I want to be on the record as being like, yeah, majority of that shit is some bullshit to me. <laughs> you know, so the, people could kind of tell me, to me, it asks bigger questions, right? If you're saying that this is great and is going to replace like copywriting and all these, all these tweets and all these things, I'm like, well, maybe you need to ask yourself if those things were worth doing in the first place, right? Like if this thing is replacing those things, we need to be talking about those things, not the tool that's replacing it, right? So again, I'm, I'm giving editorial, but it really anchored in my mind because you made an earlier point where you talked about when, when people think about data, the word takes them to numbers, but a lot of data, quote unquote, are actually words, right? And so instantly in my mind, I, I, I jotted that down and I underlined it because when we have this proliferation of so-called AI and chat GPT and all this kind of stuff, we're now adding words, right? And a lot of what I find this stuff hinges on is our ability to trust in the world around us, right? So there's this old adage, everybody has some version of this, you know, numbers, people will say numbers don't lie, but then there's like, you know, statistics could say anything, right? Like, so there's always this yin and yang between the numbers will tell us the truth to the shift of the numbers, you can't trust them, right? <laughs> like, so it's like, we're always in that debate. And you're in my mind as a practitioner, visualizing this stuff. You know, as I was reading the book, I'm like, you guys are in the fight in this, right? Because as you're pulling data, can we trust the data we're getting, right? The visualization is only going to be as good as the inputs. If the data is flawed, whether words, language, or numbers, then it doesn't matter at the other end, right? So I'm curious to get your thoughts on the innate skepticism of this, right? Of all of this stuff, right? Again, a, a bigger question because as a person, I'm not really that cynical, but I think we need to have a, a decent amount of asking hard questions to kind of get at the core of stuff. So I'm curious how you do this and think about this as it's like this, I don't know, this proliferation of just bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a good example for this question is in the beginning, when we started with Nicole together, we applied for a award. It was called social, it was called out of balance, like social systems kind of out of balance. What are today's problems? So we were looking really for the data. We were looking for the powerful story where we would like to show the unbalance between countries, in societies. And we, then we just, we lost so much time because the data was, there was always something wrong with the data. There was either well, a country was missing or a year was missing or kind of this comp the comparison was missing. So actually we were suffering a lot with the data. And then when we were kind of, when we wanted to give up, we just said, okay, listen, actually it's not about the data. We are giving too much credit to the data. We should create a solution. We should create a method to inspire people, to get them to ask questions. And if 
something in the data is wrong. We should show that. So we should provoke. And an example was that for some reason in South Korea, the, the data which was in the database, and that database was from uh, the World Database, uh, an open source. And uh, for that country, the data was too high. So kind of, it cannot be that uh, a financial analyst in South Korea was earning so much more than everybody else in the world and so much more. So obviously there was a mistake by somebody who, who made that data, that table, that database. But we said, okay, so either we, we're going to correct it or are we going to skip Korea? Kind of say, okay, we don't show that or we show it. We let's just have that surprising moment and say, that's the source. And, uh, let's have people kind of get attracted and talk about it and also kind of create criticism on that. So actually we saw that, that it's not the solution to look for that perfect moment for the perfect data, for the perfect concept, because if you look for that, you will never start and you will never start the conversation. So we said, actually, we, we have to, and our job as information designers is to take what we have to bring that to paper, not, we shouldn't, and that's the most important thing. We should not put anything by side because that's kind of a manipulation. We should take what we have, bring it to, and show it and start the conversation and let, let people judge and let people discuss with each other and let people kind of have maybe then conversations and so on. So actually we start, we see that information design is a conversation starter. That's our experience. I, I love how this, again, the invitation, the participation keeps coming back into it. And when you describe this process, you know, the modular information design process, you know, MID as it's abbreviated in the book, as I was going through it, I did get this, I, I got the sense that this is a way of thinking that is open to constant revisitation. And when I read a, a lot of stuff like this, not like visual stuff, but just like strategy and, you know, and, and like you said at the beginning at another time part in our conversation, like it's a template, right? It, it feels very much like the the authors of some of this work are like, you know, this is our way of seeing things. You pick this up, you put it over your thing, and then it's going to all fall into place. And when I went through the handbook, I didn't get that. As much as there's a running case throughout the book to illustrate the concepts, it felt like you're giving me this case to just show me how it works. But this is something that, I don't know, maybe you guys feel in 10 years, you might revisit with whole new stuff, right? Which is which is why I liked the periodic table that, that you include with it. Because, you know, we add into the periodic table, right? Like that shit changes all, <laughs> I'm not gonna say all the time, but they, you know, I, I catch a journal here and there, but they're like, oh, new element. And I'm like, okay, we didn't have that when I was in high school, right? <laughs> but now we have blockonium or some bullshit, right? That's like, you know, so I'm, I'm curious if you as a team felt what I took away from it as a, as a reader. If the readers have that takeaway, we're super happy because it's really like, it's our way of seeing things. It's our approach. It's our invitation for others to be part of the journey. I mean, we would love to add new elements into the system. 
if we see that some elements don't work or that they are kind of obvious or they are never used, so be it. So we will take things away. And the whole thing is just kind of an experimentation. It's trying out and seeing if it works. And I believe it's, it's kind of a deep believing that kind of this trying things out yourself brings you to a different way or a different knowledge than reading and saying, ah, this is like that. The one is the theoretical knowledge. We're like, okay, I can talk about things because I read about them. But you can talk about things in a completely different way when you experience them yourself. And then you see, ah, that didn't work or that worked. So kind of it's a different, it's an embodied knowledge. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, as someone who also, what's the word? Well, I know technically, well, not technically, I am um, red, green, colorblind, right? <laughs> so colors are like a, not an odd thing, because I didn't realize I was for years. And then I had to get like contacts and then they were like giving me these tests for colorblindness um, that were kind of routine, but they were like, oh, do you see like, what's the letter inside this circle? And I was like, letter, <laughs> right? I'm like, what's the numbers? I'm like, nothing. That's a bunch of just squiggly <laughs> lines and dots inside of a, another bigger circle, right? So colors to me is always a fun thing because I'm like, everything's gray or, you know, green is kind of navy and you know, there's all these variations of it. So sometimes people are like, oh, so you don't see stop signs. I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> obvious things you see, gradient things you don't see, at least in my case, right? And I really enjoyed your book because it was so vibrant, right? It is so vibrant and it is designed in such a way that I think invites the reader um, or the person kind of interacting with it to you know, really want to pick up some paper and pens and um, pencils themselves, right? And and play around with the stuff. What has been the reception that you found in the book, in the project? And then I'm going to get to the final two segments of the show. But as someone who kind of birthed this during coronavirus, I'd be curious to hear now that we're out in the world again, what has been sort of your your feedback and your thoughts on it? The feedback is mostly positive. So kind of people are like, oh, it's so interesting. And the more the people use the book, the more we get the feedback like, yeah, it, it kind of is different. And kind of I start, it takes time to understand how it works. And kind of every time I look up something, I find like new inspirations. And actually that's why, that's the idea. That's why it's the handbook. And there, of course, there are others. The, the surprising moment is that there are people who are already scientists in the field of data, like data science and so on. And the yellow chapter is actually about data and the explanation how you come from text, because the whole data in the book is like this family story. And actually it starts with that nar narrated story from that family. And from there, we extract data sets, like data, and then you work with that data, and then you go into the visualization. So actually, the yellow chapter was something I was thinking a lot, kind of how can I explain it to designers? But an interesting point is that actually data scientists say they love the yellow chapter. And I'm like, why? I mean, you are the experts. You know that already. But they're like, no, it's such a good explanation of logic and kind of how the, can you logically extract data from text and so on. So, there are really surprising moments where we're like, okay, we, we didn't expect that people will have that fun with that chapter or kind of explore that angle of the book. We didn't know that. So it was also very hard to say who is our target group when we started the project. And our publisher asked, who is the target group? We're like, uh, everyone. And he's like, yeah, everyone doesn't work. So, okay, maybe designers. Okay, designers. But then, you know, that's kind of the, the, the thing behind. 
And of course, there are also other people who um, who give us a little bit like a disappointed note. We're like, ah, I expected kind of more this template schema, faster kind of problem solution thing. We were like, no, actually, it's that, that's not what we want. I mean, there are good books for that. That's not what we do. Yeah, yeah. that wasn't the intention. It's, it, I laugh when you were like talking about your publisher and you're like, who's the audience? It's like, yeah, everyone, man. Like... <laughs> You know, but that's that. Sometimes is the best answer. It's mostly the best answer, but it's not the answer that those types of people want to hear, right? But it is sometimes the answer. Like you don't know. Like a lot of folks who you think are gonna dig something might not dig it, and then a lot of people that are totally quote unquote not the audience are gonna dig it, right? That's the beauty of things. It's interesting. I I said that that was my last question, but I kind of lied because you said something that I wanted to touch on, which is I really loved the story in the in the book. Not because the, the story in of itself was like that riveting a story. It's kind of a, like you said, a family genealogy story. But because one of the things I think about a lot is like folkloric knowledge, right? Like what can be known versus what's not known. And folkloric knowledge is one of my sort of defenses against things like artificial intelligence, right? Our ability as a species to tell story, I think, insulates us against like machines, right? Because I could tell you a story about something, you know, my family's from the West Indies, right? And so we full of stories. <laughs> and I could tell you a story about something in my culture and you will pull things from it because you're a human. And I think that that kind of protects us from that. And so citing the fact that you were able to take this story and turn it into other things, I think is is fascinating, you know? So I'd be, I'd be curious to what you think about that sort of taking the fantastic, the sort of surreal, the magic of stories that aren't just facts and doing the same sort of visualization. Do you think that there's a place for that in, in the work that you're doing? And again, this just literally came off the top of my mind. So there's not a fully formed thought, but you know. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think definitely, I think it's, it's the winning point that also data and other things, they have to have like a beginning and an ending and they have to tell the story. So because stories you will remember and the, the stories can be, we all say data stories, you have to think about kind of the way people will read something, they will take out something, the way they will experience the data. We also say, okay, data experience. And so that's super important because without that people are lost and they forget the things. And regarding also this family, I mean, we were thinking with Nicole a lot, like, what kind of data set should we use for the book? And then we kind of started, okay, let's take some data from the United Nations, and then let's take data about forests, and the, every chapter should have another data. And then we'd like, okay, but the, the readers will, every time they will have to get familiar with the data, they will have to learn in order to then learn something else, what we actually are talking about in the chapter. So we said, okay, we need something so simple. We need something that you will read once and never think about it again. You, it kind of, it should not take such of your kind of intellectual capacity when you're reading the book. It shouldn't take 
the, the story, the data shouldn't bother you. So we were, okay, what is this most simple way? What's the most simple data? And we said family, because everybody has a family. Everybody has a mother and a father. And we have a birthplace and we have a place where we lived and we have a birth date. Uh, so we said, okay, that's actually so simple. That's the universal data set for every culture, for everybody. So we said, okay, that's it. We have to work with, with that one data for the whole book. It definitely weaves a, a tale, right? I, I thought it was a, a fantastic way to go. And um, the, the book is, is really, really awesome. You know, so I'm going to get to the final two segments of the show. The first being off the dome and then the drop. And off the dome, I have three, three very quick questions. Clearly, the book is all about visualization and beauty, right? We talked about that at, at some length. So I'm going to give you a choice in the first question of the type of pictures you like to take. Are you more of a sunset or a sunrise person? Okay. Puppies, kittens, or babies? Isn't that the same? <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Okay. That's an interesting, that's an interesting, very interesting way to answer that question. I'm going to let that one lie. I like that. They are kind of all the same, but kind of different. I'm kind of less on kittens. I don't know why. They're, I don't know. Maybe it's too much fur. And I'm also not that much of a cat person, but okay. <laughs> but I love, I love that <laughs> Now the, the final off the dome question has nothing to do with a choice, but as a as an author, you know, working on this in partnership, what surprised you about? Was the one thing that really surprised you about the process of putting this handbook together? No, actually, there were so many surprising things, but I I would say the surprising moment was that for for Nicole and me, we were thinking that the book and our approach is not interesting. It's just interesting for ourselves. It was interesting for our process. It was interesting to learn more about us. And that people suddenly said, of course, we kind of like, kind of like in a way, like we've been waiting for this. And we're like, what? So kind of, it's, it feels so natural, but it was not, not natural at all. So kind of the biggest surprise is that there is, there are people perceiving it and saying, yeah, kind of, it's so good that it's there. And we're like, okay, that's, that's really a big surprise. And also we did a Kickstarter campaign and people were like, all kind of buying the book before it was finished. And we're like, how mm. is that possible? That's awesome. Those are, I love surprises to the upside. <laughs> that is a, a very good thing. So I'm going to get to the drop and the drop is just an opportunity to share anything at all with my listeners. My Drop is a TV show. It's a new streaming show. I don't, well, new to me. It probably came out like in the past month or so here in the US on one of our platforms called Hulu. I always give the platform because I know things stream on different things in different parts of the world. So here in the US is on Hulu. To the extent that it's available elsewhere in the world, I have no idea what it's on. Um, but it's called Unprisoned. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting show. It's kind of like a comedy dramedy with um, Kerry Washington and Delroy Lindo and other assorted others um, about a woman who's a therapist living in Minneapolis, whose father is recently freed from prison and how they come together kind of as a family. Which sounds kind of heavy, but it is actually kind of a, it is a comedy, but it's, it's really light and interesting. And I think it's, it's fun. And in a world filled with so many heavy things, sometimes it's good to have something that gives you a little bit of a chuckle. So, um, my drop is unprisoned domestically on Hulu internationally could be on anything, but if you can find it, I think it's worth a watch and that's my drop. So you're up my friend. 
I, I had something until yesterday uh, when I read that actually also others <laughs> others like it a lot. I think it's kind of, I thought it's my secret thing that I found it, but it's not a secret at all. I mean, it's on Apple TV because you just talked about um, Hulu. I mean, everybody's talking about the Ted Lasso and, and it's exactly going into that direction. It, it's kind of this guy, a coach coming from the US, coming to Britain. Uh, where everybody's playing soccer and, um, he has no clue, but he's just a kind of good, optimistic, easy going guy. And it's just so relaxing. And I really just can recommend. I mean, he's that person type of, uh, leader who is just optimistic and good. And it's kind of not about being the badass leader, the, the good and the hard guy. It's kind of that there are also other soft skills, which are really nice. And it's nice to look at that. The soft skills are the best skills. <laughs> There's too much in the world that's hard enough, right? We've got to move away from that. So yeah, that's a great drop. And I've heard, you know, as someone who watches like a shit ton of stuff, it's crazy that I haven't watched this. Like, seriously, I watch a ton of shit. And... <laughs> It just hasn't bubbled up yet. And I and I like football. So it's weird that I haven't cracked that nut, but I'm going to get to it. Um, definitely to at least give it a shot. So Darian, it's been great. I, I really appreciate you coming on the deep dive. I also want to, again, give a shout out to Nicole who couldn't join us, but you can feel the collective energy of the work. Again, it's called Visualizing Complexity Modular Information Design Handbook. It's a great, great piece, I think. Anyone interested in these topics should definitely pick it up. And thanks so much for being on the deep dive. Thank you. Thanks. It was a pleasure. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.